This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today, as a guest, we have Larry Hay. He's the president of Haycorp, a business consulting firm he founded in 2003. Larry helps companies identify their core business opportunities and strategically position themselves to take advantage of developing business and consumer trends. Larry was named as one of the top 100 executives in Colorado by the Denver Business Journal. To drill down further and give you guys some idea, in 1990, he was the senior director of PepsiCo Taco Bell. 1996, chief operating officer, senior VP of operations, Einstein Noah Restaurant Group. 1997, vice president, FedEx Kinko. 2000, founder, president, HomeSync. 2005, CEO, founder, Smart Care Family Med Centers. 2008, director, operating partner of Mantucket Capital Management Group. 2014, chairman, board of directors, Applejack Wine and Spirits. 2016 to present, Board of Directors, Finance Chair, Deenan, Inc. He's an expert at expansion, growth, and solving challenges in multifaceted, fast-paced, complex environments and helps maximize profitability and efficiency, providing operational and organizational analysis and improvement implementation for individual businesses and private equity firms. He provides potential assessment, due diligence, operational, strategic, and management analysis for institutional investors seeking in-depth research on existing and potential portfolio companies. Larry also fills interim executive roles, board of director leadership and director representation, and has extensive Fortune 500 and middle market business experience leading multifaceted, multi-unit, high-growth and dynamic organizations in multiple industries including private equity, retail, restaurant, healthcare, business services, agriculture, and home technology industries. Larry, that's a mouthful. Sounds like I've been alive a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 105. Larry, welcome to the podcast. We appreciate you taking the time. You know, to, to kind of get things rolling, we went through a fairly lengthy introduction, and I wanted folks to understand the breadth of your experience and, and what you'd done. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself growing up and the evolution of that pathway to where you are now. Yeah, I, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia in the South and um, kind of, you know, grew up out in the country on a lake. My dad was a barber, you know, didn't really necessarily come from a business background. My dad did own his own business. My mother actually owned her own business. She was a, uh, had a Sears distributorship, a Sears store and a flower shop and a few other things like that. And I uh, went to the University of Georgia, and my passion has always been history and military history, so I have a degree in military history. It's absolutely worthless. When I got out of college, I was going to be a college professor, and I started going through the process, and I said, you know, they really don't make that much money, <laughs> and it's going to take a long time to get there, so I decided I'd better find something else to do. Wound up uh, getting a job at Radio Shack back in the days when Radio Shack was exploding all over the place, and I said, I'm going to do this for a little while until I figure out what I'm going to do. And uh, 35 years later, I'm still trying to decide what I'm going to do in my life. But it turned out that, um, or what I want to be when I grow up. But it turned out I, I had a propensity for business, and I was pretty good at it. And had a very successful run through a number of companies that you mentioned. And, and I've kind of been in business all my life, and now that's my passion. And uh, that's what I really enjoy doing. So, You know, you, you mentioned early on that you worked for Radio Shack. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you went to work for them? Gosh, I would have been, let's see, 18, 21 or 22, somewhere around in there. And so they hire you up, and they put you in, in positions of responsibility for how many stores? Oh, gosh. When I started out with them, I, I grew up through their systems. I was a store manager for a while. And I guess I was 24 when I took over my first district, as they call it. And I think I had 30 stores or so uh, scattered across the southern part of Georgia. 
Um, and I was responsible for everything. So I had full P&L responsibility for all these stores. I opened stores. I hired people, did all the training. It took care of everything. And uh, you're pretty much out there autonomously on your own. And I think that's where I really cut my teeth in business. And like I said, for whatever reason, I had a knack for it. I didn't know I did until I started doing it. But uh, Did they have a training program at all? Yeah, yeah, they did. It, it was it – was, very, I don't want to say superficial, but they sort of gave you the fundamentals of what you needed. But their system was they they would give you the tools you needed, and then they would put you out there. And basically, they give you enough rope to sink or swim. And, you know, some people didn't make it. But the ones that did, you know, really knew what they were doing and learned the business. So, so that was the foundation. Yeah, yeah. And then... You transitioned from that to Pepsi. Yeah, I was recruited by Pepsi. I had been with Taco Bell for about, thir- uh, excuse me, with Radio Shack for about 13 years or so. And then Pepsi approached me, and, and they were looking for, within Pepsi, in the restaurant division, in Taco Bell, it was going through a transformational stage. That's when uh, John Martin had just taken over CEO, and Taco Bell had turned into the chain that we know it today and had started the price wars in the fast food business. And so they were looking for somebody from outside the business that had a different perspective to step into this fast food environment and help them grow and build that business. Well, I had just come from an environment where we were expanding and growing and and I did a lot of problem solving and went into areas that were either underdeveloped or, or uh, underpenetrated or sometimes were turnaround situations. And so that was what was appealing to them because primarily their their group of upper management had all grown up in the fast food business. And so uh, so that's why they sought me out. And, and I thought, this is interesting. This is challenging. I, I, I kind of I think I'll go do this. And I did. So I made tacos for 10 years. <laughs> you know, and, and just so folks have an idea, the growth of the area that you were in went from how many to how many? When I took over, this, I ran the South. And there were about – give or take 125 locations or so, and I grew it to 1,000. So by the time I left, I had 1,000 Taco Bells of one way, shape, or form uh, scattered throughout what you would consider the traditional South, from the Mason-Dixon to Texas. So we've, we've got the early part of what you've done and, and where you cut your teeth. What are you working on now, and what's got you excited? Well, I went through from, from Pepsi. I went to Einstein's, and then I, w- I ran Kinko's for the central U.S., and that was really interesting. It was through a transformational stage that Kinko's was going through. They went from a click shop, a copy shop, to doing real business work and, and, and that sort of thing, and I, I stepped in right in the involvement of that and helped develop some of those um, initiatives and sort of changed the way they were doing business and developed a whole um, business services aspect to, to their approach that they were doing and uh, managed to build a good piece of business around that and that expanded and, and all those kinds of things. And then I decided I was going to do my own thing. So I, I went out and I did a technology startup and it was a home technology integration company with some partners. And we founded this company on legal pads in a basement of, of one of the guy's houses. And two or three years later, we had 60% of the new home construction in Colorado had one of our systems in it, which basically integrated everything that had to do with technology in your homes. And we did bandwidth provisioning and sound systems and alarm systems and monitoring systems and automated controls and, you know, all those kinds of things. And we sold that. And then I got into the uh, healthcare business. And we, I was one of the founders of a company called Smart Care Family Medical Centers. And it was one of the very first five medical centers to do retail healthcare clinics and services in the country. And, um, uh, very early entrance, and we had to kind of figure out how that business worked and how to make that work in the in the medical environment and the regulatory situations that, that were going on at the time. And uh, wound up on the front page of the business section of the USA Today, 
So that was my claim to fame there. And um, we had national contracts with Walmart and, and regional contracts with, with uh, the Kroger family and several other groups like that. And we wound up selling that company. And so that was my second startup that, 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 that developed and sold. And uh, then I decided to go on the other side of the, the, the fundraising table, if you will, and got involved in private equity. And so for a decade, I was the operating partner for a billion-dollar private equity firm here in Denver, Colorado. And we primarily focused on middle market to lower middle market um, investments in the banking-related side. Uh, we did passive investments in oil and gas and a variety of different things, and then operating companies. And so as the operating partner, I oversaw all of the operating company investments. And so I would go in and look at a company and say, hey, this is what's good about the company. This is what's bad about the company. This is what it can do. This is what it would take for it to reach its potential. And this is how long and what kind of investment we would have to put into it. And this is all the work that will have to be done to get there. And if we decided to invest in the company, then I put together the strategic plan to, to accomplish those goals. And then would usually take, uh, I'd always take a board seat, sometimes chair the board, and then step into the company and initiate that strategic plan and make sure it, it developed and moved forward. And sometimes I'd step in as as a CEO or some other senior management position within the company for a period of time until things got going. And then I'd step out and do the same thing with another company. So, And then now um, I'm on my own. So I, I actually have had a consulting uh, firm for, gosh, a long time, 10, 15 years, something like that, that I, I did um, in addition to the other things I had going on. And so now I've, I'm doing that full time and I'm kind of doing the same thing. I'm helping middle market companies, lower middle market companies that are either trying to expand or have operational challenges they're trying to get around or just trying to figure out what their place is in the world and where they want to go and what they can become. And so I step in and do some analysis with them and say, look, this is where your issues are. This is where your potential is. And this is what it'll take to solve these problems. And sometimes I step in and actually solve those problems for them. And sometimes I just help them along. And then I also sit on a number of boards um, as just a paid board uh, uh, member on a variety of different companies um, all over the place. So. That's kind of what I do. So w once you come in and, and you set the company up, do you find um, that there are just some key concepts that you typically run across when there's a problem in a firm and typical key concepts that you apply to solve a problem? Or are they all pretty, pretty much unique? Well, it, there's a couple of different ways I would answer that. One of the things that's interesting when you go from business to business to business is the challenges they face are many times the same. It's a different industry. It's a different particular situation. But the fundamentals behind the challenge many times are very, very similar. So you're able to take experiences from other businesses and other industries and solve problems in a, in a completely different field, whether it be going from a fertilizer manufacturer that we were talking about earlier to, to a medical distribution company. Many times the challenges are the same. But usually they're the, the, the ones that I'm best at and the ones that I like to help solve are growing pains. It's where a company has – it's many times a, a, an owner-operator or first-generation owner of a company that's built it up to a certain level, say 20 million in sales, 20, 30 million in sales, somewhere around that neighborhood. <clears throat> and they're, they're looking at their company and they're saying, look, I know we can grow more and I know we can do move further and I know there's opportunities for us, but I just don't know how to address them. Because many times in that situation, the, the key people in the company are at the limits of what they can personally do. And so they, they can no longer touch every piece of their business. And the struggle is, how do I double the size of my business when there's only one me? And so then it, they're stepping into a whole different 
means of managing and running their business because they're having to exponentially, they're having to first of all sit down and self-analyze what it is they do and why are they successful and then figure out how to to replicate that and expand their influence and expand what they're doing in their business without carbon copying themselves. And that's the mistake most businesses make when they're at that phase. And that's where the wheels start waggling on the truck going down the road and where things start falling apart and nuts and bolts from falling off is because the business has actually outgrown their ability to personally manage it anymore. And and that's a real, it doesn't sound like a big step, but, but it's a huge step for a business to go through when they start having to systemize what they're doing in order to replicate what they're doing in order to expand what they're doing. And then the other piece of it is just identifying you know, many successful businesses just do the same thing over and over and over again. Well, the world's a changing place. I mean, you know, Blockbuster used to be a big company. <laughs> Radio Shack used to be a big company. The world is changing all around us. And, and you may have a niche that's, that's, you know, very profitable, doing very well for you today, but it may not even exist tomorrow. And sometimes a different set of eyes coming in and looking at your business without the, the cloudiness and the, the baggage of, of having lived in it for a decade or two can look at your business and look at the consumer trends and identify new paths and new opportunities that are out there. And they're not, you know, a negative situation has always got opportunities to it. So if the, if the Internet is taking your business away, it's also creating opportunities for you. And being able to look at that and say, this is where you can take your business and this is how you can grow in this current environment and the world is changing and this is how you need to change with it so that's that's that was a long answer to your question but, no, I, you know, and, and but that's you, what i like to do as you were talking i was thinking so in, in your current firm where you're looking for p- potential private equity investments what's the general industry is there an industry specific interest no, that you have no not really uh, across the board i mean just in recent years it's gone from couple that we mentioned already agriculture to to restaurants to hospitality to uh, manufacturing. To I've been in the ice cream business. I'm on the board of an ice cream company recently, and uh, uh, medical distribution and device manufacturing, medical device manufacturing, and just kind of all over the place. So it's not really an industry. It's more of a situation, mm-hmm. I think, a, a status of a company's evolution that I was describing before that 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 seems to to work well and be where I'm the most effective. Must be an an interesting. Arrival when you come into a company and the guy's successful, or the, or the gal, and they're they're at the level of whatever their skill sets will get them there. Whatever they have, it got them where they are. But it's the same thing that keeps them from getting somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you talk to them and say, "We really, if you want me involved, you really have to change, or you have to kind of give up." Mm-hmm. How's that conversation go? Well, you know, most of the time when I get involved, they kind of know already. I mean, these aren't these are people that are pretty smart. They're successful. They've managed to build a, a wonderful business in most most instances. I mean, sometimes I step in when they have issues, but most of the time they've built a wonderful business and they're looking at their business and they they realize where they've really looked themselves in the mirror and admitted it you know, in 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 a more tangible sense, but they realize that they've reached a a plateau. And they know that there's an opportunity for them to move past that plateau, but they don't know exactly how to get there. So usually it's a very positive conversation. I mean, we'll sit down and, and, and I'll, I'll learn a little bit about their business and do some analysis. And I'll come back and I'll say, look, this is where I, I think your challenges are. And this is where I think your strengths are. And this is where I think your business can really go. And nine times out of 10, I, I, there's some recognition in their face. So they, they, they have way back in the back of their minds, they've thought about some of this stuff. They either didn't want to face it or didn't know how to deal with it or, 
for whatever reason, they've just not done anything with it. And when I start talking about it, you can see wheels start turning most of the time. Sometimes there are situations where I'll point out an issue that they have that they don't think is an issue until I start talking about it. And then as we go through it and talk about it, and I say, this is why this is going to be a problem, and this is where it's going to – it's usually a problem that hasn't occurred yet. And um, usually they're very, very receptive because they start seeing it in a different light and, and looking at it from a different angle. Well, before I get too far in the weeds here, and for the folks that are out there listening, and they go, I need to talk to that guy. How do they find you? How do they reach out to you? You know, I've got a website. Uh, it's haycourt.net, just H-A-Y-C-O-R-P dot net. And all my information is on there. My contact information is on there. My bio is on there. The companies I've worked with are on there and kind of the capabilities and things that we do. And, and it, so it tells you how to get hold of us, of me. And, um, you know, the best way to, to find out what we might be able to do is a conversation. And I'm happy to sit down and talk to anybody about their business. Um, but you can get a lot of information from the website. Super. Well, that's, that's a good thing, and, and they can reach out. And I was thinking, if, if you were sitting today and looking at a number of opportunities that were on your desk, and, and let's say that there's more opportunities than you had time what would be the, the, the factor or factors that would cause you to prioritize one business over another to bring it to the top of the heap for you to deal with? Well, it depends on what I was looking at to do. You know, if I was stepping into a business to help them, let me answer it a different way. Um, ultimately, or I shouldn't say ultimately, many times a business owner is looking at opportunities to be able to capitalize on their business. They've grown a business. They've got something in their hands. They think it's worth something. At some point, they're going to exit their business, and they're looking for, what's my liquidity event? How do I get out of here? And um, I think the evaluation that you go through for that liquidity event and the evaluation you go through to see and determine what kind of potential your your business has are not necessarily all that different. And so looking at it from an investment perspective, so let's just say I was looking at a company that said, hey, look, we want to have a liquidity event. I want to bring in some investors. I want to grow this thing. I know I need extra capital. Or I'm looking for a liquidity event because um, I'm reaching the point where this is, you know, I'm reaching the end of my journey here, and I, I don't know what's next. Uh, it's kind of the same thing. And there are kind of five things that you look at from a private equity perspective when you're evaluating a business, whether it be for investment or potential. And one of them is the valuation. And, and it's funny to talk about that at first, but you'd be surprised how many medium-sized business owners have dramatically unrealistic expectations about valuation. They read on the internet or in the newspaper somewhere where, you know, some technology company sold for 12 times EBITDA. So they say, well, my company must be 12 times EBITDA. Or they read where some high growth company sold for three times sales. So they say, well, my company must be three times sales. Or they read where, you know, there was some other unusual situation like that. And they have a tendency sometimes to take the very best of every scenario, add all those together and say, well, then my little company that does $20 million a year and does you know, $5 million in EBITDA must be worth $100 million. It's like, well, no, it's not. <laughs> and so many times you'll look at them and, and you'll, and there, there's some things to know about valuation. I guess I'll probably start running down rabbit holes here, but they come, they're in tranches. So if a company is doing less than $5 million a year, let's say, and there's no hard and fast rules, but generally speaking, your, your multiple on EBITDA is going to be somewhere between four and six, somewhere in that neighborhood. And so there are things that affect that that are going to make it closer to the four or closer to the six or maybe a little bit less than four or maybe a little bit more than six. But fundamentally, it's somewhere in that space. 
if your business is doing over $10 million, now your multiple is going to start jumping. And there's reasons for that. If you're below that $5 million number, it's hard to get a lot of people interested in your business simply because it takes the same amount of effort, energy, time, and resources to grow a $5, uh, a $5 million EBITDA number as it does a $50 million EBITDA number. And so investors and private equity groups and so on look at that and say, you know, what's going to be our return for this effort that we're going to put, put into it relative to the size of the business? The other one is that the, the price and multiple you might get many times is driven by what the exit could, can be for the investor, number one, and then secondly, what kind of financing they can get for it. And so banks are less interested in, many times, in, in companies that are in the lower end of that scale than they are in companies that are above that $10 million EBITDA number. So once you get over that $10 million EBITDA number, your buyer investor has better opportunities for leverageability with banks. Um, they have better exit opportunities. There's less risk in the business. And many times you'll have strategic buyers mixed in the, with that mix as well, which generally will pay up for a business. So suddenly your valuation starts going up. So one thing is is, is the valuation. So when you're looking at a company, if you have a, 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 a CEO or an owner that thinks their company is worth, you know, 100 million and you think it's worth 20, you may just walk away from the table because that's going to be a long, hard journey to get those two uh, relative to one another. And if you're on the investor side, you do that all day long. So you know what that valuation is going to be. And that in, that own business owner is the only time they've ever done this, probably, maybe the second time. And so it's going to be a hard journey to pull them down, but the number is going to be closer to what the investor says it is than closer to what the business seller says it is. So that's one thing. The other thing that, that you look at is just scale. You look at a business and say, what what is this business oppor business's opportunity to grow? To grow through either replication and more bricks and mortar or through scaling whatever it is they do and being able to leverage their current infrastructure and their current environment and their current capabilities to do more and more and more of this, either in different geographies, in different platforms, in different segments. So maybe expanding out over the internet or you know whatever the case may be. And if that scale is there, then it's very attractive because you can invest in that business and you can grow it through the scale. The other one is what's the customer proposition? So you look at a business and you say, well, what are they actually offering? If it's another widget, then maybe it's a little bit better than the widget down the street, but there's another widget coming out very, every month. What's the real customer value here? You know, what, what are they offering that, that has stickiness to it so the customers are going to stay with them? Um, what are they offering that's unique? What are they offering that's, that's different? And what's the market cap or the market space for what it is they're doing? You know, is this a, a new area that's just wide open greenfield or is it an area that's just been plowed over and over? You know, is it just another sandwich shop mm -hmm. is an example that we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. You know, there's just so many of them. It's just a tired space. So, you know, and then in looking at that proposition, you also look at it, customer proposition and say, you know, what is, um, are there reoccurring revenue streams in here? Or are they having to resell to their customers every single time? And if there are reoccurring revenue streams, then that adds value to it, and that adds interest to it. Um, and then the, the, one of the last ones is just risk. What's the risk in the business? You know, are people going to come in and steal their market share? Is somebody else going to invent a bigger thing? And so on and so forth. And then it's, what's my exit? How do I get out of this? If, I, if you're going to invest in this, then what's the exit? How do you get it to the next level? 
if you're a business owner and, and you've got a series of contracts on reoccurring revenue, and let's say the average length of your contract's three years versus the average length of contract of seven years, what would that do to the multiple, you think? All things else it depends on how you if you're if you're acquiring a steady stream of those recurring revenues and, and but they're dropping off on the end but you have a steady stream and rhythmic stream of them coming in not that much um, you want that recurring revenue stream but once it's once it's there and it's continuing you're adding to and you're replacing them um, it's more valuable to have them longer but I think it's 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 or better to have them longer I think there's more value to having a continual addition of that reoccurring revenue base than anything so okay. About. It's kind of like compounding interest. Yes. It really is. It's the yes. same thing. Same thing. Mm -hmm. And then how many contracts drop off. And mm -hmm. um, for, for you, when, when somebody engages with you at Haycorp, what do you think the, the predominant value offering that you bring to the table? Because you serve on many boards. Mm -hmm. What do you think that is? I think it's a different perspective. It's a, you know, as you mentioned, I don't mean to sound the wrong way, but I've, done a lot, I've been around the block a time or two. And so many times you come into a business and, and just having that perspective of seeing a, a lot of successes and seeing a lot of failures and, and seeing a lot of bumps in the road and getting past those bumps in the road and being able to look at 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 kind of what uh, businesses um, offering is and what they're what the space that they're in is and how that space is moving which basically translates into identifying customer trends I think is very valuable and I think that's a lot of what I'm able to bring to the table for business owners you know and as, as we talk about that you know, and, and we've got Haycorp as a business consulting firm. You know, for the business owner that's out there listening, you know, what are a couple of things or most important strategies or insights in broad terms that you can offer to, to them that perhaps another business consulting firm may not have? What makes Haycorp unique, you think? You know, I think it, 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 it goes back to a couple of things. I think, you, you know, you sort of read through, ran through my background and my experiences, and, I, and th that's fairly broad, and there's a, there's a lot of learnings that have come through that. I've got, I have a lot of stripes on my back. And um, I think a, 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 another piece of it is, you know, a lot of consultants come in and they'll look at your business and basically hand you a piece of paper or give you a report and say, hey, this is what you need to do. And then they're off and they're gone. I think the perspective that I bring to the table is I've been there and I've done that. I've got 35 years of doing this, not just analyzing businesses, but looking at businesses and developing businesses and building successful businesses and selling them and replicating and solving problems and all those kinds of things. So it's not someone coming in that's read a lot of books and it's going to, you know, regurgitate something they read out of a book to you. It's someone who's sitting down and saying, I've faced the same problem not once, not twice, but multiple times. And here are your options on solving this. And I think that's the difference that I'm able to bring to the table. That and the fact that I, I have spent a decade in private equity. So I, I know, and private equity is very good at analyzing businesses, very good at it. And so I know what they look at. I know what the trigger points are. And I think those are very healthy learnings to be able to apply to any business um, to analyze how they're performing and how they can grow and, and how they can solve their problems. So. In your estimation, the amount of funds available in the private equity space—do you see them in an, in an upward trend, or do you think they plateaued, or do you think they're? Declined? You know, you could—I could pull up three articles for you today. One would say it's growing, one would say it's declining, <laughs> one would say it's flat. So it's variable. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the, you know, they're—they're they're always talking about there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines, and that's true. But what makes private equity really tick is that you have 
you know, large sums of money that are out there that's able to be invested in businesses that can get higher returns than just investing on businesses in the stock market. And that's ultimately what it's all about. And so they're willing to take a little bit more risk. They're looking for companies that they can grow, that they can uh, develop, um, that they can uh, build an organization around and then turn into something much bigger than what they already are and then leverage their investment and so on. So to answer your question, there's always private equity out there uh, chasing good deals, as they say, but but who knows, you know. And, you know, in thinking about that, you know, if you're engaged to come into a business, whether you're an owner or brought in as a consultant and, and you're, you're going to help them out, what are the top few things that you always do either just before you get into the business or when you get there? First thing I do is sit down with the CEO and tell me and ask them, what what are your what's your vision? What is it you're trying to accomplish here? You know, you and and many times these are owner operators or, or founders. Is you built this? What was your envision? What did you envision when you started? And what do you want to do with this thing? Where do you see it going? Because there's no sense in me going in and and pretending to solve problems for them when I don't even understand what it is that they're trying to do. And I think that's a, an issue with a lot of consultants is, a, is, a, is that they go in and start saying, well, here's what you need to do. And, and they don't even know what they're trying to accomplish, what the business owner really wants. And so that's what I'll do first to sit down and spend a lot of time talking to them about what their vision is what they and what they're trying to accomplish. And then depending on what the situation is, it can either be, you know, an operational issue that you wind up spending a lot of time on or almost any issue you start dealing with, it has to do with human capital at some point in time. And so the next step for me really is sitting down and, and talking to their people and understanding the capabilities of some of their key players, their CFO, their COO, and so on and so forth. And then piecing all that together as background and saying, okay, now, Let's talk about your business and what it is you're trying to do here and what challenges you're facing. Um, so that's probably not a real good answer to your question, but that's no, kind of the first but, things I do. I never know, walk in cold and just start pretending like I'm going to solve problems. You know, you know I, I think for many, you know, you have a routine and you kind of go, I, I have a routine because it's worked in the past mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable with it. And, you know, and I think if somebody's out there listening and goes, so, you know, we have Larry coming over and says, what should I expect? You know, and you say you expect to have a lengthy conversation. Mm-hmm. That's what you expect to have. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I, I think that's valuable for folks to think that, you know, if they engage with you and call you up and think you're going to walk in and wave a wand. Doesn't work that way. That, that's or a, if somebody's doing that, they're not really helping you. You might think they are, but they're really not. We may have touched on this already, but in, in your current mode right now in your company, if there's a, a company out there that would be interested in talking to you, what in general size are you looking at? deploying your your skills toward you know i can work with just about anybody i mean from startups to to fortune 500 companies but i think my real sweet spot is middle market companies and that, and everybody has a different definition of middle market but it really it's from 20 to 100 million somewhere in that neighborhood um, where i do my best work is companies that are growing and that they're having growing pains uh, that's i've spent a whole career solving growing pains and uh and uh, to me that's very exciting I love nothing better than walking into a business and seeing opportunity all over the place and, and just sitting down and talking to them and figuring out how do we capitalize on these opportunities and how do we make your business bigger, better, more profitable, run more efficiently. That's what I love to do. And it's circling back to our earlier conversation where you were talking about your franchise experience, mm-hmm. you know, and over time, I'm sure you see common factors in in franchise operations, the things that make them successful and the things that make them fail. What are some of the things in both of those areas that you would say are fairly common for you to have seen in the past? It depends on where you're talking about, the franchisor 
or the franchisee. I think the very most important thing for a franchisor is, first of all, you have to have something to franchise. And, and I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that said, hey, I have this neat idea, I'm going to franchise it. And I said, well, what are you actually going to franchise? They said, well, my neat idea. I said, well, you've got to have a little bit more than that uh, to <laughs> offer people because somebody's going to pay you a fee. So what are they paying you for? You know, um, So you have to have systems and and operational guidelines, and you've got to have some, a package that you can offer these people. But aside from that, the, the most important thing, I think, that makes a franchise or organization successful is the relationship that they have with those franchisees. And some franchisors are in the mode of, we want to sell franchises, and they will sell a franchise and get someone in place that's working that franchise, and whatever it may be, whether it's a service company or a salmon shop. And then they move on to the next and the next and the next. And they don't wind up servicing and, and helping making that franchisee successful. They all talk that game. They all say that, but not all of them do that. And that's where franchise organizations start having problems. That's when you see lawsuits and you see unhappy franchisees and suddenly they're not selling franchises anymore and all those kinds of things. As a franchisee, you know, in my opinion, you're buying a franchise and the whole reason you're buying a franchise is in theory, these people have it figured out and they're putting it in a box and you're going to open that box and you're going to run this successful business by doing exactly what they told you or showed you. And you might add a little flavor to it here and there, but they've got something that's figured out. And so many franchisees will buy a franchise and immediately start changing everything and say, yeah, but I can do it better. And this is how I'm going to do this. And this is how I'm good. And they don't follow the formula. And, and maybe they add a little tweak to it that's, that works. Nine times out of ten, they're harming themselves by doing that. But the way you look at it is that's what you paid for. So use it. Shut up you know, and color. Shut up and color. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. You know, we, we talk about that. And, you know, and through your career, I, I pulled something out. And it says you implemented the peak performance. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and it's just a standardized operational measurement and training program that was rolled out nationally and is still in use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Take me through what that yeah, is. Yeah, that was back at Pepsi at Taco Bell. And we we had we would go in and you'd look – well, I had a 1,000 restaurants back there, right? So you'd go into a restaurant and you'd look at it and you'd say, you know, this, this restaurant isn't running as well as it should be. And so a district manager or market manager or whatever would go in and say, well, you need to do this and this and this and you're not doing this and that's what's wrong with your operation. And then you'd come back later and you'd see some of the same issues or different issues. And, and so as I started peeling that back, I said, well, why is this going on? I said, you know, and if you think about it, you know, we, we were going in that situation say, you're doing this wrong, do it this way. I'll be back in a month and we'll see how you're doing now. And ultimately what, it was, what I decided is I said, you know, I don't think these people are stupid. You know, they want to be successful. Somehow we're not giving them the tools. So what the peak performance was, was an evaluation you do on the restaurant. But then it would say, hey, these things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And then it would move over to a column right next to it and say, well, these are the likely reasons. And here's the resources you need. In other words, here's the training materials. Here's the SOP on how this is supposed to be done. Here are the solves for that issues. And rather than just slapping someone on the wrist and saying, do it the way you're supposed to do, it peeled back the onion and, and got down to the core of why wasn't it happening in the restaurant. Nine times out of ten, it was because the the systems had never been implemented or the people didn't understand how to utilize the tools that were already there. And and that's why that became so successful. And, and we had a whole award system and restaurants had a, a peak five-star rating, the plaque that they put on and all this kind of stuff. And then our franchise group picked up on it. 
and decided it was a great way to evaluate franchisees. And I haven't checked in a while, but that was a long time ago. And it was still, I was in a franchise not too terribly long ago and saw one of the plaques up there. And I said, well, I'll be darned, they're still using that. So Enduring policies and procedures. I guess so. Must have worked. <laughs> With, with your experience in the, in the business community and all the various businesses you've seen and been on the inside, you know, what are one or two, one or two of the smartest or best things you've ever seen a business owner execute that moved their company forward that was unique? I don't know if there's any uniqueness out there, but <coughs> what sticks out in your mind? Well, I, you know, I mean, I could probably think of some individual examples, but I think making it a little broader than that, you know, I, I've run across CEOs and company owners that that peeling it back before they built their business or how they built their business is they saw an opportunity. And so many of us see opportunities. I mean, every day we're driving home from work and said, somebody ought to invent this, or why don't they do that? Or why don't, you know, I, I need a, a widget that does this. And, and then we go home and we eat dinner and we forget about it. Well, these people saw an issue and did something to address it and fixed it. One of the companies that I'm on the board of right now, Deenan, is a, uh, uh, a medical uh, device manufacturer. And the way that happened was the CEO and founder had a child that had um, uh, a, a walking issue. And, and the products that were available to help solve that walking issue uh, didn't work. And he said, well, there's a better way to do this. And so he just built one, and it worked. And then he thought about it and said, somebody asked him, said, well, will you make one for my kid? And he did, and no more for my And then next thing you know, he's got a a magnificent company that does tremendous work and is doing all this good for all these children, primarily all over the country, simply because he saw an opportunity and he went after it. And so to answer your question, I think, I don't know if that's the, I'm not saying if if that's, you know, some brilliant thing, but there are opportunities everywhere that people think of and nobody ever acts on them. And I think some of the smartest things that I see people do is just take action on some of those opportunities and be risk takers. And it's gutsy to quit your job and make a, a foot brace for your for kids and start selling out of the trunk of your car but now he's got a super successful company that's doing fabulously and i can give you example after example after example like that you know we we hear the stories well my my job was eliminated or i was downsized or any number of things where the job that i had that was my security blanket went away Mm -hmm. and then the next thing you know is but i took what i knew and i pursued this yeah. And so that was the genesis or what is it? FedEx's story. And I, it's one of my favorite ones where the guy was short of a fuel bill. So he took the money, went out to Vegas and gambled enough to pay his fuel bill. Not what I'd recommend. <laughs> Certainly not my skill set. I'd, you know, I'd be broke. But, you know, but, you know, you think about the things where we were talking before some of the, you know, the ideas that die on the kitchen table. Yeah. Where people just won't move forward. Yeah. You know, and, and I think so. Let's say given what you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And you had an idea, whatever it might be. What would you do to start trying to basically prosecute that idea forward? What would you do? Well, I think is looking at I, I mentioned it before is is what's the what's the customer proposition? I mean, what it is that you really have? And then what's the customer opportunity? You know, what space is opened up in the market, if you will? What window has opened 
that allows you to take advantage of it, allows you to bring this, whether it's a product, an idea, a service, or whatever it is, to market and start expanding it and really understanding that. And, you know, I believe the windows of opportunities on things like that open and close all the time. And if it's open and you stand there and stare at it long enough, it's going to close. Either somebody else is going to jump through it or the situation is going to change. But the worst thing you can do is take a, a running start for that window and it closes in front of you and you just bang your head. You, so you have to really think through, I think, and the, the, the real step, I believe, in the real strategic piece is mapping that out and understanding what the opportunity is and then crafting your idea or your business or whatever it is to maximize off of that opportunity and not having a lot of ownership. You know, one of the hardest things business people do is they come up with a business and they've got a a successfully running business, but the environment is changing on them, but there's all this legacy stuff that they don't want to they don't want to change. You know, they don't want to, they don't believe it's broken or it's a sacred cow. And I think that's some of the worst things that you can do because the, the world's a changing place. And, and if you hang on to some of that stuff too long and you're not evolving as you go along, you can turn yourself into a dinosaur and you don't know it until you're already dead. And really? that's happened to, that's, I used Blockbuster earlier. Enron. There's I mean, Blockbuster, there's Sears, there's all those companies. Oh, same yeah. thing. Boston Chicken. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, and I think about that, you know, and as you've gone through your career, there were probably instrumental people that that showed up along the way. What Mm -hmm. do you think the best advice you ever received was? You know, I I had, uh, it's funny, I'm answering this real fast, so you're probably going to think, somebody's going to think, you already asked him this question, but you didn't. Um, I was was, uh, with a company, and we were looking at, it was a bagel company, and we were looking at buying another bagel company. And and everything made sense about it. And I was one of the people that said, I don't think we should do it. And the CEO said, why don't you think we should do it? And I I had a real lousy answer to that question. And I said, I can't describe it. My gut's telling me it's not a smart move. And he said, we're paying you for your gut. He said, we're paying you for your experience and that third sense that you have. And he said, that's that's what I wanted to hear. And he said, we're not going to do it. And we didn't. And so I think just following your instinct, sometimes you don't trust your instincts as much as you should but many times your instincts are right when you peel it back there's something behind there is telling you that so yeah you you wonder sometimes if subconscious is working away in the (laughs) background and it it reflected in the gut you know for for you as you've gone through the journey what would you describe as your best personal habit that you think has contributed to your success i don't know if i have any good personal habits i I, I will say this, and people tell me this, and I think it's true now that I've, I've thought about it and become a little more self-aware. You know, gray hair has some <laughs> advantages, and that's that uh, I have a very curious – I'm intellectually very curious, and I love looking at businesses especially and understanding the nuances of businesses and what they do and how they do and how they meet the demand for whatever product or service it is that they do. And so that that's a trait that I think that – that has always served me well. I think it's only been in the last decade or so that I've really realized that, but I think it's always been there. So, When you, when you go to learn, or, or how do you consume that information? Are you a, an audiobooks type person? Do you read much? Or? I usually talk to people. You know, I love sitting down talking to CEO and saying, tell me about your business. And, you know, I go to a lot of functions and business meetings and things like that. And my favorite part is at lunch or cocktail hour for a variety of different reasons. But, um, but, but sitting down talking to people and saying, just tell me about your business. And sometimes they'll just say, oh, yeah, I'm in insurance. Well, how did you get in that? And so I'll start asking more and more questions. And that's usually how I do it. You know, it, we, we've, we've been, we haven't, it seems like we just started and we've been doing this a little bit of time, you know, as far as, as, as parting guidance that you might offer 
to some of the business owners that are listening that are struggling? Should I call him or should I not call him? What piece of advice would you offer them? Well, it never hurts to call. And, and a conversation is free. And I, I think if, if, you, if you're in a difficult situation, if you're a business owner and you're in a difficult situation, you know, it's lonely at the top. <laughs> and so here you are with everything. I know what it feels like. I've been there. You're, you're sitting there at the, 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 at the behind the desk, and you feel like the whole world's on you, and you, the, all the responsibility and all the decision-making is yours, and, and with that comes all the fault and all the, 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 the downfalls. And I think having someone to talk to where you can just say, can, let me just talk to you about what I'm doing, even if, if it's nothing more than just airing that out, I think can be one of the most valuable things that a CEO can have. The boards that I sit on, I've had many of them say, what makes you a good board member and, and what's your style? And I say, I'm your partner here. I'm your sounding board. And I want to be the person that you call and say, I've got a problem and I want to talk to you about it. And I want to get your opinion on it. And, and being that confidant, if you will, to talk to. And so my advice would be, whether it's me or anybody else, just talk it through with someone. Don't be afraid to sit down in front of somebody and say, I don't know the answer. Because if you're the CEO and you're running a company, you're spo- we think you're supposed to know all the answers. That's, that's what we all tell ourselves. But you don't have to know all the answers. It's okay to tell someone you don't. And, and just get that different perspective. You, the truth of the matter is you probably have the answers. You just don't realize what they are. And talking it through with some, someone else many times will help you realize what that answer really is. Great advice. I think, maybe. <laughs> well, Larry, I appreciate you taking the hey, time thank you and so carving much. it out. Fun. And um, look forward to doing this again. Okay, good. Thank you, sir. Thanks.